Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Geo Swaby. The Art Institute of Chicago is presenting Geo Swaby Fresh Up, a solo exhibition of works Swaby made between 2017 and 2021. Swaby's embroidered portraits celebrate both blackness and her subject's self-awareness and self-empowerment. The Art Institute's Melinda Watt co-curated the show with Catherine Pill, who is a curator at the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg, Florida. Rizzoli Electa published an accompanying catalog in association with the two museums. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about 35 bucks. This is Swaby's first museum solo exhibition. Her work is in the collection of art museums such as the MFA Boston, the Weissman Art Museum at the University of Minnesota, and the Minneapolis Institute of Art. On the second segment, Coded, Art Enters the Computer Age at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. But first, Geo Swaby, after the break. Opening next week at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy will be the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. Plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Fay Heavy Shield Confluences, Curated by Tamara Schenkenberg, on view now through August 6th. Confluences features a selection of Faye Heavy Shield's drawings and sculptures from the 1980s to the present, alongside two commissions responding to landscapes and histories of the greater St. Louis area. During a career that spans more than 30 years, Heavy Shield's work draws upon her family histories, traditional Gaina stories, language, and knowledge, as well as childhood experiences in the residential school system. The spare power of the prairie landscape of her home community informs Heavy Shield's poetic, often minimal aesthetic vocabulary and use of humble materials. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's Digital Guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. This digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Geo Swaby, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here. How early in your career, 
And I should note that you've been exhibiting since 2013, the year after you graduated from the College of the Bahamas. How early in your career did you land on textiles as a particular interest and focus? So it would be around the same time in 2013. So it was the year after I finished the College of the Bahamas. And, you know, that program is very focused on more like traditional forms of art making that we think of painting, drawing, sculpture. And I do, you know, take some of those elements into my work now, but I moved into working with textiles like the the year right after that, after connecting with a quilter during a residency in the Bahamas at Pop-Up Studios. What about textiles worked for you? For me, it just felt like coming back home in a way. It was almost like a full circle moment of connecting art to life because I learned to sew really young from my mom. She was a seamstress for, you know, well before I was born. She learned to sew as a teenager and it's always been a part of my life, always been like a sewing room or sewing area in our house, lots of fabric and thread. And it's just always felt like I thought that was normal. I thought everybody had like, you know, there's just three sewing machines and like bolts of fabric everywhere. I didn't realize this was like a special thing that was happening for me. And when I came back to kind of understanding it as an art form, it just felt like it made sense. And for me, I learned about you know, its connections more to my practice as time went on and I worked more with the medium. It's certainly about this expression of love that I want to capture through my work. And textiles feels like a really comfortable and natural way to do that because it was an exploration of love between me and my mom. And then also it is like this level of familiarity in the material for people that maybe unfamiliar with art or didn't grow up with art in the same way that I did not. And they can kind of connect the material as something that they experience and live with every day. And I think it breaks down some of the barriers in trying to access and and, and connect with my work. A lot of artists who use textiles in the United States point to the G's Bend exhibitions of the 90s and aughts as being important You are younger than many of them, and you're not from the United States. Were those exhibitions or Rosie Lee Tompkins or any of the way in which the institutional United States art world has embraced textiles important to you? It was more something I learned about later. It was was not a reason why I entered textiles because, you know, for me, I actually didn't start off knowing that much about art. And even people that know a lot about art still, uh, you know, are not aware of G-Spence and the incredible quilters through that movement. And it was more like it expanded my understanding of where, like the placement of my work, because most of my exhibitions happen in the United States. So that's not a history that can be ignored in connection with my use of textiles. So it was more like a learning experience of kind of recognizing how how their work has like indirectly impacted my practice. And now it's certainly a very direct connection that I have been able to learn more about it. Within that answer is an explanation of how cultural imperialism works. (laughs) 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 So, (laughs) So you become interested in making textilic work 
I imagine that one of the things you had to decide pretty early on was where to source your textiles. Was that a series of conscious decisions or was it something more organic that you just used what was around? Definitely more organic. For me, the way I think about process and the way I think about learning during my MFA and being able to connect with more indigenous thought leaders and people uh, working in those realms, I thought about uh, and learned more about more decolonial or even anti-colonial forms of learning and knowing. And that, you know, sometimes there is a piece about the intuition and the understanding that you maybe don't have at that time. But when you trace back later on, you can see what you started to do in the beginning. And I privilege all of that knowledge in the same way that, you know, I, I privilege the kind of logical and heady thinking. So it was really natural. Like, you know, I grew up going to fabric stores with my mom and that's what I did when I wanted fabrics. There's a fabric store in the Bahamas, like the premier fabric store, home fabrics. That's where I started off shopping. And I still kind of carry that, you know, same tradition to today. I love visiting fabric stores. I'm sure they find me very annoying because I'm, I spent hours there and then I want like a hundred fabrics that they have to cut. And then I have to apologize the whole time. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but it is, it's a wonderful, beautiful experience. It's like, I get so much, I feel so energized after that process. And then through the pandemic, I had to shop online. There was no in-store, of course. And I hated it at first. It was like, you know, I can't see what this is like in real life. I can't feel it, but it has now just really kind of well, I have a, an online shopping addiction now is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I enjoy every minute of it. Why is feeling the fabric important? I think there's something about an activation that happens. Like, because my work, of course, as, as you know, for most artists, is so much with the hand and, and the tactile sensations of it. I just kind of get a feeling of understanding when I come into contact with the fabric so there's that part of it. And then there's also just like the practical part of understanding if this type of material will work with my process. I normally work with, you know, 100% cottons used mostly for quilting. Sometimes I will bring in other kinds of fabric when I need a certain, a certain look and a certain aesthetic that I want to achieve with my work. But I don't know, there's something about just, just holding them and seeing it in person that just produces a different energy than like scrolling on my phone for a couple of hours, putting stuff into a virtual cart. We will come back to textiles in a moment, but I want to touch on another foundation of your work here at the top. For years now, you have foregrounded that your work is an act of joy and a work of love. You mentioned it, in fact, a moment ago. So before investigating that approach a bit more, are there thinkers or authors whose address of joy and love within an artist's practice or an individual's conduct of, you know, life. Are there authors who have been particularly important to you? Oh, for sure. For sure. Like my work is really rooted in black feminist theory. My work is, is about a celebration of blackness and womanhood. And 
you know, an, an expansive understanding of womanhood that does not exclude queer and trans identities. So that's the kind of authors that I gravitate toward. I have, you know, I've read a lot of uh, Bell Hooks, Roxanne Gay, Alice Walker, Audre Lorde, so many more that, you know, these are the kinds of works that I pull so much of my conceptual underpinnings from and where I start to, like, I want to be able to have an understanding of the work that's already in place and how my my visual art fits into that. And a, a lot of my visual practice is also very connected to a writing practice. I write a lot of the texts for my works. When you visit my exhibitions, a lot of the text is written by me. Also, I've written, you know, a lot of the text for, for the book as well, for my uh, first catalog as well. So Two things about that. One, uh, a number of the writers you just mentioned collect your work. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who I'll reference again in a moment, who does the interview with you in the catalog for the show in the book, has your work. And in terms of your writing in relation to presentations of your work, uh, kind of the second half of the book, if you will, or the second two-thirds of the book, feature series of your work, and you have written an introductory panel text, if you will, to each of those sections. So the reader gets your words before seeing your work. And we'll have a link, of course, to the book on on the show page on manpodcast.com. So speaking of joy, speaking of love, I want to ask two questions about how you've transitioned your interest in those concepts as presented by feminist authors into your work. First, what about textiles makes them a good material to work with and play with and be exuberant with when making work that is an act of love? So I kind of talked about my entry point into understanding these pieces like as an act of love. And then also there, there's, especially in many black communities, there is such a strong connection to the material of fabric and textile through the process of quilting, being able to pass down histories and stories through quilts, through the, you know, through the oral histories that are connected to, to these materials. And I think, you know, when you see my work, it does, it does bring about a kind of sensation of a quilt or an understanding it involves a lot of those techniques. Another part for me about being able to experience this work, especially when I think about black women and girls experiencing this work as a form of love, as a form to access joy uh, at the at the root of that, at the very base, like the entry point has to be about accessibility. So I pull a lot of my ideas around accessibility from bell hooks and my experience with entering academia. And there's a lot of reading involved. There's a lot of writing involved. And it was hard for me to really feel connected to a lot of what I was reading. Like I could have an understanding, but I never felt like a lot of it was really that, that much about my life or felt that connected to my life. There were some relationships, but nothing really felt like right at home until I read Bell Hooks. And it was like a life raft was sent out for me and I could really now start to figure out 
you know, this is truly for me and this is, this is where I belong. This is where I feel, you know, a level of not just comfort, but an expansive kind of learning. What one of the things I admire the most about her writing is how accessible it is, but she doesn't give up any of the complexity and none of the intimacy to get to a point of accessibility. And that's so incredibly difficult to explain such a vast and complex concept in language that feels like welcoming. So that's where, that's the spot I want to land in for presenting my work. And that's the kind of experience I would like the viewer to have in seeing and experiencing my work. Within the European and the European-American traditions, portraiture is typically an exercise in power. It's very often, almost always, a, a very transactional medium. Were there pathways you found useful to thinking about how portraiture could be other than those things? Yes. For me, that was so connected to, again, the reading, the writing, the learning. I read a text from an author, an indigenous author based in Canada, Dylan Miner, and they wrote about art projects that they engaged in. And they explained that the connection that they made with the participants, they'd done a project where they involved a lot of the kids in the community, a lot of the younger people in the community and creating these, I think they were bicycles together. And of course, like the physical objects were exhibited, but they explained that the basis of that work, the bulk of that work was in actually connecting with those people who were part of the project and that the physical creations were like a residue of that work of connecting. And it really shifted how I saw my own practice I've always wanted to approach with like an intentional moment of connection with the person that I'm representing. So while I'm engaging in the photography session, there's also a conversation that happens. And a lot of the women I represent, a lot of them are self-portraits and then portraits of my family and friends. So we already have a relationship, but there's something, there's something special about that intentional connection and what it means for us. So I also want, I also kind of viewed my work in that way, that the connection is the bulk of it. And then the portrait that is created is like a tribute to that person. It's in dedication to them and it celebrates, you know, the love we have for one another. It celebrates our friendship and it also celebrates that person. When I hear you say that, all I can think of is that's not the relationship Benjamin West had with King George. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, I think the way you lay that out, which I think is not certainly the same as, but it is not unrelated to the way an artist like Barclay Hendricks would talk about portraiture, points to how the form has been deconstructed by non-European American artists in the last generation or two almost always in ways that are much more interesting than Benjamin West and King George. Perhaps, so I guess, I guess taking off from that meandering thought, perhaps excluding your 2015 performance, Other Other, 
which is on your website and to which we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Pretty much all your work maintains a certain connective relationship with painting. You're not using oil paint, but you are working in spaces that we recognize from painting, oval and rectangular formats of things that hang on a wall. What are the relationships between painting and how you use textiles that interest you and that you draw from? I think of my work as kind of existing in a lot of the in-between spaces. You know, I work with textiles and when you're working with museums and other spaces, they need a way to to find the works to be able to kind of categorize them for a level of understanding. And I, I get that, 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 that is the way, or that is one way in order to approach it. But I see my work existing in so many realms. It, it is connected to painting. It is also connected to drawing and collage. And there's a strong photography element because I'm working directly from photographs. For painting, for me, I started off with painting, learning to paint. I think the connection is like the basis of color theory, understanding how color works and how things will work together. You know, thinking about a painter like Joseph Albers and how, you know, just layering the colors in a way that something moves forward or moves completely into the background. I have all those same considerations in creating my work. There's a different kind of freedom, I guess, in working with an existing pattern and an existing color that, you know, you work with paint and it's working from, you know, the colors that are in the tube and then mixing from that point. It's like unlimited access to color in a way, I guess. But I also feel like I have an unlimited access to color, mostly supported through the shopping addiction I mentioned earlier. I feel that that's that's where the that connection really is. There's so much consideration of where and and down to composition as well, how the figure will be placed on the canvas. Like, what is the relationship? So many of my figures are, you know, there's no connection to the space in a way because there's there are no objects and there's no floor space or or depth. Right. So it's floating in a way, but then I also want to figure out a way to use the thread and the fabric to create a kind of depth and dimension to the figure. So a lot of the considerations are the same. It's just like which which avenue I'm taking to create my own work. And of course, the most obvious link between your work and painting is its relationship with portraiture. So there's an interview you did with Nicole Hannah-Jones in the book. And right away, I, like like in the first answer of the interview you emphasize that your textile portraits are your, quote, attempt toward decolonizing portraiture. There is a long history of, well, you know, maybe a four, three or four generation history of intellectuals discussing portraiture as a colonizer's tool. Albert Mami, for example, builds whole sections of his classic, The Colonizer and the Colonized, around portraiture, both in the art sense, you know, in terms of art objects, but also he uses portraits as a metaphor a lot. And I think that on his first or second page, he introduces his investigation of the effects of colonialism on colonized people and colonizers 
alike as, quote, a portrait of one of the major oppressions of our time. So this is all a very long way of asking. <laughs> as you thought and think about your work as doing decolonizing work, whose approaches to decolonizing did you find of interest and how did you apply them? I think, again, it's it's very rooted in a lot of Black feminist theory, a lot of reading Indigenous thinkers and writers as well. I wanted to approach this work in a way that's felt intersectional. You know, it as as a Black woman, you know, from the Caribbean, living in Canada as an immigrant now, you you can feel like the intersectionality is just your neutral point. But as I learned from reading Bell Hooks, there's always a level of, you know, potential domination that can happen, especially in certain kinds of power dynamics, being the artist and inviting a sitter to take part in my process. So for me, I, I want to approach this process with a lot of respect for how it can be the most ethical. I don't want to kind of approach it in a haphazard way. I want to think about, you know, how can I maintain the most autonomy for the sitter? For me, that's achieved through them choosing their own outfits, having control over the conversation, creating an intimate space for them, and kind of working from what feels the most comfortable for them. And it's ongoing work to figure out the best way to be able to do that and to be able to approach it. It's something I take incredibly serious. And I also make sure that when I'm working with, uh, when I'm working with someone to create these portraits that they're also to understand it as a kind of work. Yes, there are beautiful connections that are happening, you know, most often an experience that we both walk away from with, a lot of joy and, you know, a renewed and deeper connection, but it is still work. So I make sure that whenever I'm working with people that they are paid for the time, that they will be a part of this process. And it's funny because that is the part of this process that I get the most pushback on people not being willing to accept any money or, or not wanting to accept any money for their time. And it's really something that I have to put my foot down on and, and try to, to really indicate to them, you know, this, this, this is a kind of work. I, I want to connect with you in this way, but I also want to make sure that I don't take advantage of your time, even though that I mentioned most of them are friends and family that I want to make sure that I honor the time and I honor them as a person. You mentioned maximizing the agency of the sitter, or or I guess maybe in the context of your work, the person being portrayed, because like no one is ever sitting down. <laughs> yes. The poses in which you present people are seemingly impossibly rich with expression, given that, you know, you're not working with a painter's tools and shadow and light and those things, you, you still manage to get an enormous amount of individual verve into what is basically two dimensions. So I wanted to talk about those poses for a moment. How do you get them? Do you, do you ask a 
someone posing for you to to wander around for a bit while you take pictures? Do you ask them to you know strike a pose, snap? How does it work where you get the animation, if you will, onto a wall? Just in the same way that they do, you know, come and bring the outfits that they want to wear for the photo shoot. I also want them to move in a way that feels comfortable for them. That's different for every person. Like a couple of the people that I photographed were dancers. Movement was just a part of their life. So I didn't, there was, there was nothing much that I really needed to even say. It was just like, okay, well, let's start photographing. We talk, we kind of like, you know, there's a little bit of a conversation that's just even start just to get people to feel confident or comfortable and to warm up a bit. And then some people are immediately just like, you know, they are moving. They're able to like think about where they want to move and what kind of postures they want. And some people come into this knowing this is the kind of pose that I want because I feel like it's the most me. And then we can work in a very in in that kind of smaller framework of capturing the right moment in that pose for them. And then some people don't know exactly what they want to do. And it takes a little bit longer to get them to a point of feeling comfortable with moving. And I think just having that really intimate environment, I I don't consider myself a photographer. I'm not like, you know, an extremely strong photographer, but I like to work with just me and the person so that there's just a level of comfort. Some people like music, some people don't. But a lot of the selection process is where we capture that moment of like, this is the photo and that is a collaborative process of selection. So I will go in as the artist and select like, you know, maybe 10, 15. And we work together to try to select one that feels the most like them. And this is part of where the intuition comes into. I look at the photo and I just get like this feeling around it. Like, you know, this person seems to be like in between, maybe they just sat down or they just moved their arm into this pose or they were about to like walk. And I want to capture and and see that sense of movement when I am selecting the photo. And I recognize too, that those are the images that people are most drawn to as well of their self. So once there's a recognition of truth of like authenticity of this is me and this looks like me and this feels like me, and, and we both kind of land on one together, that's often going to be the photo that has that moment. That's really interesting. Quite often you choose not to present the face of the person you're portraying. So I'm thinking of your Love Letter series works, a lot of the My Hands Are Clean works, the New Growth works. Why sometimes a visage and why sometimes not? I mean, that's for me why I like to work in different series or different ways as an artist, because, you know, I want to communicate multiple, multiple ideas through these, through these different series. So in the love letter series, like you mentioned, there are no facial features. It's silhouetted. And for me, I feel that, and this has been established through the exhibitions and people coming to see the work. When you know who that person is represented in the portrait, you can look at it and immediately know who it is because so much of who we are and how we move is in, you know, the body language, the way, the, the posture, the placement of the hands, you can look at it and say, I've seen them do this a million times and know 
you know, this is, this is my friend. This is a person who I've seen a lot and you recognize who it is. But if you aren't familiar with that specific person represented in the work, it, it offers a moment of connection with, for the viewer where they can look at that series and say, oh, that looks like my daughter. That looks like me. That looks like my friend. I've seen this woman around my neighborhood. It's someone I know, someone I love, someone I recognize. So in those pieces that are silhouetted, that moment is often even stronger because it actually a lot of times could really be the person that they are thinking of. When I've seen like photos that people have shown me through walking through the exhibition and, and recognizing someone they know in that series and in the New Growth series, it truly is like uncanny. And for me, that's part of the moment I want to generate for, for people coming to see this exhibition, especially black viewers coming to see the show, coming to see these shows and to experience that moment of recognition, reflection and community in seeing in seeing people that they have seen before and seeing that love reflected to them. You mentioned silhouettes. Silhouettes have a long history of, I don't know, something between art history and visual culture as, as a form going back to at least the 18th century. In looking at your work, I don't get a real vibe that that history has interested you, but I'm not about assuming. So has any of that history interested you? I would say not really. I I guess I I don't consider myself to be an historian in any way. Of course, like I have an MFA now, so I've done a lot of study with art history, but I feel like my work is quite focused. So for me, if I don't feel like a strong connection or inclination to kind of really dig deeper into a certain area. And then I want to focus on the areas that, and there, they are plentiful that I really feel does inspire and, and really strongly connect with my work. And for me, that is often, you know, really rooted in the conceptual. I mean, of course I have a lot of visual inspiration as well, but not in that particular particular history. I mean, of course, there's artists like work in the silhouetted form like Kara Walker that I have really looked at and I feel are referenced through my work and practice. But to say the strong focus on specifically the silhouette rather than the understanding of the artist as a whole is, is not really a part of my practice. The closest I could get to finding a possible jumping off point for your interest in silhouetted profiles was Martin Purrier's 1999, that profile at the Getty Museum. A number of works from your new growth second chapter series have a position of the head, tilt of the head, that recall what Purrier does in that work. And of course, part of what Purrier is doing in that work is referring to people's absented and left out of portraiture traditions. And yet, the, you know, as I looked at it and looked at it in preparing to talk to you, I could never quite get there. And by there, I mean, believing that you had found Purrier important. I can find maybe some shared philosophical interests, but not a artistic descent. I'm, I'm sure there are others too. There, there are a couple I think I can find, but we'll get to those in a minute. 
I mean, for me, I feel like I am in a space of, I still feel really like young as an artist and I'm still in the space of constantly, I mean, I hope to be in the space forever, learning and kind of expanding knowledge. So that's why it's always really interesting to me to speak with people who have like specialties in other areas to kind of, you know, further understand how my work is like positioned in the larger canon. And it's not a conversation that I move away from in, in, you know, sometimes there's like a, uh, people don't want to say that they don't know or don't understand. And that's one of my favorite areas to explore or to talk about, because for me, it's how you open yourself up to understanding and learning even more. And just like with the G's Ben connection, things exist that influence your work that perhaps you might not be fully aware of until you look into it further and you see how those connections are built and made through multiple entry points. I think it works the same way for critics and historians. We just do it in dark rooms alone and not in interviews. (laughs) (laughs) So I relate to what you just said, comma, and a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, kind of speaking of this art historical area, back to poses for a moment. I think you've talked about this in the past. Some artists like Kahinda Wiley riff on poses from European grand manner portraiture by migrating poses from specific historical portraits into their work. And I think you're pretty obviously disinterested in mimicking that practice, even as your works kind of remind us why those those historical pictures were called swagger portraits. You talked a moment ago about how you source poses, and so it's not from art history. But are there ways in which art history and artists of the long ago past have posed people, whether in European art or in African art or in Aboriginal Australian art or whatever, that interest you? I think there's definitely an interest there for me, but what I where I position my work or when I think about my work, I kind of want to think about it in this present tense of understanding that it is a, it is like uh, documenting the story of now and also thinking about futurisms as well and the connection of this work. I feel like for artists, especially a lot of artists who work in portraiture, just always the attempt to kind of, I don't know, historicize the work in a way, connect it and and place it in a past tense. And for me, I'm so deeply inspired by the people who are in this work, the life that they have right now. And that's where I source so much of what I want to understand as like documenting Black Bahamian culture, Black Caribbean culture, and wanting to be able to speak from my very specific perspective of having been born and raised in the Bahamas and spending most of my life there and what that means for my work and practice. There are many incredible Bahamian artists who are also so a part of this conversation, but we're a really small place and enough of that work hasn't been done. So that's where I want to place my work when I'm thinking about it, I guess, in a 
historical way of how I can start to tell the story of now and what that will mean to immortalize the people that I'm representing now and to create a portrait that can feel one it's one of the reasons why I don't normally work with a lot of background and create a figure that feels floating to almost create a portrait that can feel timeless in a way that is not really tied to a very particular or a very particular moment in in the past tense because I feel like that's so common especially for a lot of Caribbean artists who want to connect it to a history especially a history that is really steeped in a lot of I guess a lot of trauma and suffering for us at that time and I and for me it's about wanting to be able to connect to a kind of joy that is as a result of exploring that history, but to be able to create a portrait that feels full of that person and and who they are today. You have described your recent new growth series uh, as, quote, an ode to black hair and the magic that it truly is. And I'm taking that quote from one of those little introductory Swaby authored panels that you referenced earlier. So in the new growth works, you're making profiles of people out of collaged textiles, which is to say you're making work about black hair in which the viewer sees the suggestion of hair, the shape of hair, and you're mostly relying on the viewer's eye and imagination to fill in the rest, which, I, which it does rather remarkably, actually. You've made other work that features black hair, of course, where you've, you know, air quotes, filled it in, you know, where you've you've used, you know, thread and machine stitching to present a human with hair and, and you've machine stitched or hand threaded the representation of hair. But specifically in those in New Growth and New Growth Second Chapter, why in those works did you choose to textile and ode to black hair in a way that's almost abstract? Well, I can start with the the visual of it. So a lot of those portraits are presented in a grid format where you see like six or nine of them at a time all together. And for me, looking at it, looking at them in that silhouetted form was there was so much attention to the hair because of the hairstyles that I chose to work with and how that became like the center focus of the work. Of course, I'm working, you know, in a frame that's basically from, you know, the shoulders up. And I wanted to be able to, I think like having the facial features, it becomes more about, there's there's more information there. And I think you kind of end up losing the focus in a way. And that's why I wanted to work in the silhouetted form. I feel like black hair just lends itself so much to the silhouette, a lot of the hairstyles. And that's where, for me, I I kind of approached from with this. I also wanted to incorporate a lot of uh, color into this work. And for me, working in the silhouette was a way for me to do that. You know, the work is, I described the series is also like a celebration of black hair and being able to see all the colors and patterns, the, you know, very 
for me, my color palette is very influenced by the Caribbean. A lot of floral, a lot of uh, very bright and some pastel colors. I just felt like it really kind of captured that celebratory nature of wanting to how I wanted to approach and and understand this uh, concept or idea of black hair. You mentioned that you often install these new growth works on a grid. I think we'll have some install shots on manpodcast.com. One of the things, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminded me that, you know, within European American and American practice, going back to the 19th century, grids are often typologizing Uh, kind of an anthropologizing format, a way of categorizing things or people, and indeed going back to the transatlantic construction of racialization in the 19th century, that's exactly how grids were used. So I don't mean to suggest you were mindfully or at all interested in responding to a 19th century European-American practice, but by using textiles and silhouettes and not filling in visages, but holding onto the grid. That struck me as a really interestingly decolonizing of formats that European Americans and Europeans used to categorize in limiting ways. And as a history nerd, I found that really interesting. Okay, so um, Wilson, take this out. So here's where I'm about to ask about a couple artists, and you can totally wave them off. There are two artists who in the last couple decades have made work about black women and hair in ways that I wonder if you are intentionally engaging. And those two artists are Lorna Simpson and Ellen Gallagher. Uh, Yes, so definitely the Lorna Simpson I remember seeing Lorna Simpson. I think it was at the New Museum. Perhaps it was, this was like 2011 or 2012. So right before I started my textile practice, also making use of the grid in a way, working a lot with hair. And that's, that's going to be true for many Black women artists because hair is such a big and important part of our lives and an important part of our identities. So certainly uh, Lorna Simpson and seeing her work for the first time was, you know, very shortly before I started my own exploration into black hair and thinking about that. Alan Gallagher as well is a really big influence for me, again, with, you know, working in, in the grid format, a focus on the hair I think it was in the same trip that I went to New York that I saw Lorna Simpson's work and Ellen Gallagher. And I'm not sure exactly at which museums, but I feel like, you know, that was some of the first work that I, because these were some of the first museums I was ever visiting in my life. That first trip to New York, probably, I think, around 2011, 2010. And seeing those works, I saw the potential for what my practice could be and how what I wanted to explore could fit into the world. Of course, I had this same experience seeing Ebony Patterson's work for the first time as well. So this very good, really, really good connections to those two artists. I think I know which Simpson and Gallagher shows you're referencing. I think the Simpson, the Lorna Simpson show is Lorna Simpson Gathered at the Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, It was up for most of 2011. 
Interestingly, it included a work both built on a grid and then on an opposite wall, a work in which Simpson is, is you know, very much deconstructing the grid. And then the Ellen Gallagher show from 2011 that I'm guessing you're remembering was at Gagosian, and it had a heck of a lot of silhouettes in it. Yeah, yeah, this is, that sounds correct. This is a while ago now, so I don't remember exactly, but I just remember how much being on that trip. I took that trip during, it wasn't during my time as a resident at Pop-Up Studios, but a lot of my friends were residents and I kind of tagged along on there. There was an annual trip as a part of the residency to go to New York to visit these museums and galleries and to see these exhibitions. And that just, I feel like that really changed so much about my understanding of art being a person, never visited museums growing up. My family was not in our family. Like, you know, we didn't travel all that much. Even the local museums in the Bahamas, we didn't really visit that much because, you know, we didn't know that much about art. So I felt like being the first kind of in a generation to to, to pursue and to want to see and to experience art in this way, that time was monumental for me, a monumental shift for me. Love it. Gio Swaby, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. It was like truly an incredible interview. Thank you so much. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org slash impressionist. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark DeSuvero Steel Like Paper, an exhibition that explores the artist's six decades long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next, I'll be joined by Leslie Jones, the curator of Coded, Art Enters the Computer Age, 1952 to 1982, at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. The exhibition examines how artists embraced computer technology in the first decades of the computer age. It's on view through July 2nd. Delmonico Books and LACMA co-published the exhibition catalog. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $60 to $70. Leslie Jones, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. Happy to be here. The exhibition ends in 1982, which I think anybody listening will quickly understand because for so many of us, we understand that that's when the personal computer matures and replaces, you know, room-sized computers. But the show starts in 1952, which I think for a lot of us takes a little more thought. So why did you begin the project in 1952? I started with works by Ben Leposky, which were made in 1952. 
They are what he called electronic abstractions, and they're basically photographs taken from the monitor of an oscilloscope. And I started there because they are sort of widely considered to be among the earliest purely aesthetic works made on an electronic device. And it's not a computer per se, but it anticipated what a lot of the computer artists would do a few years later. And they are manipulated Lisajou curves. So like a lot of early computer art, it's based in mathematics, mathematical curves like a Lisajou curve or a Fibonacci sequence or a certain kind of algorithmic program. So I thought it was a good place to start. And I also loved the fact that these are photographs from a monitor, just in terms of a process, like there was no way to output this early visual material in the 1950s. That didn't come until maybe late 50s, early 60s, I would say, with like plotter printers and impact printers and that sort of thing. So that's why I started in 52. And I thought it was important just to have a, you know, 30 year period where you could really see the development of the mainframe technologies in relationship to art making. 52 is a little bit before the development and emergence of conceptual art, especially in Los Angeles and Northern Europe, but not that far before. Across the catalog, a number of the authors argue for meaning in the relationship between computer-informed slash driven art as the 1950s turned to the 1960s and the emergence of conceptualism. What's the relationship? Well, I think, I mean, it's the argument I make in the exhibition is is a bit of a zeitgeist argument that I feel like there was a growing awareness and consciousness of what computers were. I mean, no one had direct access to them at the time other than people who worked for the government or a larger corporation, maybe a university. So I think there was a growing awareness about these machines as computational devices. And just, it came about by looking at the art, the computer art, which was new to me. The conceptual art was more familiar to me, of course, and recognizing themes that they had in common, like the use of abstract geometric forms, seriality, an interest in the depersonalization of the artist's process, and the incorporation of chance as well. So I, I, I noted these certain themes that I saw also in conceptual art in the computer art at the time. And it just struck me as maybe it was the time to think about this work more broadly and not limit it to its relevance as just purely technological, like in terms of technolo- technological innovation, but that actually might have some artistic interest as well. You mentioned your personal knowledge of conceptual art. I'll just fill in for listeners that you are, among uh, many other things, the curator of the 2010 John Baldessari retrospective. Right. Yes. A few years ago. (laughs) Yeah. A few years ago. Computer art, conceptual art, and kind of the third thing that is in the ether, um, the transcontinental at least, ether of kind of the early part of the show, is another movement that touched on the emergent digital op art. You and many of the catalog contributors note op art, such as work by Francois Morellet. Is it that op art and, and artists working in an oppy way are pushed in the optical 
distraction by what they could do with the computer? Or I don't know, I guess I'm asking how you think that relationship worked. I think it's more of a zeitgeist mm. thing. Like I said, Bridget Riley never worked with a computer. And I don't think Francois Morlet did either. Victor Vazarelli was very interested in the potential of computer technology, but he, as far as I know, didn't have any, didn't work with one directly. There's an interesting proposal he submitted to LACMA's art and technology program in the late 60s. He was he submitted a pro- proposal to IBM, actually, in which he was hoping to work with them to come up with like this lumino-cybernetic screen, basically. It was like a large grid in which you could generate pictures, like a picture-making machine. But the estimated cost at the time was $2 million. <laughs> so that one was quickly tabled. <laughs> but his interest was there. You know, He saw the potential for computers to as a tool right, to assist the artist, I think, in generating compositions that could become more widely available to the public, more accessible as an art form. And then we actually, in conjunction with the Coded Exhibition, our Art and Tech Lab, which is sort of the contemporary version of the Art and Tech program, commissioned the contemporary artist Casey Reyes to do a piece inspired by Vazarelli's initial proposal to the Art and Tech Lab. And that's available online. That's an interactive piece that's on LACMA's website. And you could go in and sort of make your own composition. And then he also went on to do another piece that will be on view at LACMA beginning April 9th. There's all kinds of online stuff for this show, including a playlist. Uh, We will have links to all of those on manpodcast.com. And if I did this right, we'll even have uh, the, the sound you heard at the beginning of this segment is mm. among the, um, I don't know if tunes is the word, but tunes featured on the playlist. Yes, so that was it, a great project that I worked on with uh, Mark McNeil, who's also known as DJ Frosty. We made that selection together. And it was, I'm glad you brought that up because it was important to me that this exhibition be multidisciplinary because it was there were all creatives were interested in the potential of computer technology and musicians were among the first to embrace the technology early adapters if you will yeah tunes is probably not the best word to describe the tracks on the no. playlist <laughs> some are not totally listenable it's very interesting and you know and it was very experimental and then you know when you do get to like late 70s the the music of Laurie Spiegel and then Kraftwerk of course in 1982 then they become definitely listenable so it's um worth checking out in the years the show covers sometimes it seems like there's always an Ed Keenholz And when it comes to the decades-long migration of the computer from federal or corporate object to the personal, there certainly is. So how and when does Keenholz address, and I guess sort of make, a computer? Yeah, you're speaking about the friendly gray computer. That's literally the title, by the way. That's That's literally the title of the work. Yeah, the friendly gray computer. It was made in 1965, and it was acquired actually shortly thereafter by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I think they included it in their machine machine show. And I was instantly attracted to it. It's of course not made, it's not an actual computer. It's typical of Keenholz. It's made with found industrial parts that he's compiled to look like a, I guess, you know, or humanoid figure sitting in a rocking chair. 
and there's some lights that actually light up. And originally it was interactive. You could ask the friendly gray computer yes or no questions. And to me, it seemed to kind of capture feelings of ambivalence that people may have had at the time because, well, number one, it's it's a friendly computer. So it was, you know, meant to be amiable and attract people's <laughs> curiosity. But at the same time, if you you see an image of it, it's it's a little creepy looking. There are baby's legs coming house. out of the front of it. Yeah, exactly. And it's oozing, you know, typical of Keenholz. It's kind of oozing this grimy liquid. It almost is reminiscent of oil or something coming out of it. So yeah, like I said, it seemed to capture mixed feelings. You know, it was a curious figure, but it was also unsettling. And I, I had a sense that at the time, people were also had those feelings in regards to computers in general. They weren't sure. They didn't know what to quite to um, expect from them. There are a lot of photographs in the catalog, the catalog, which is fantastically designed, richly illustrated, and which includes 15 authors, and not only a chronology in the usual place we find it in a catalog, but a a chronology in the beginning of the catalog, Mm -hmm. all kinds of just all kinds of stuff in the catalog, go get go get the catalog. But there are lots of photographs in the catalog of people in rooms that hold room sized computers. And some of them are in the show, such as a 1967 Henri Cartier-Bresson of NASA's JFK Space Center. And others, like a 1953-ish picture made by Ezra Stoller of an IBM showroom in New York City, or or at least in New York State. But what they all have in common, what all of these pictures that have in common are, they're pictures of 1950s and 60s computers, which are, of course, enormous. And people are always in those pictures. Why do you think people are always in those pictures? And and what does that tell us? That's a good question. I mean, I think maybe from IBM's perspective, if we're talking about photography that they had done for commercial purposes, right? They wanted people to feel like they could relate to a computer. They probably wanted to humanize it in in a certain way or provide context for the Henri Cartier-Bresson image. Yeah, no, I love that image. It's just, uh, I guess, I assume they're the engineers, NASA employees, basically kicking back <laughs> at their feet, terminals. Yeah, feet in work shoes are prominent in pretty much the middle of the picture. Yeah, and they all have the same <laughs> outfit on too. We should note yeah. that. The classic short-sleeved white shirt and black or brown slacks. <laughs> and all wearing ties, of course. Looking very oh, much at ease and comfortable, right, in this in this context. So Cartier-Bresson was invited by NASA to visit the launch room, as were other artists like Lowell Nesbitt, I think Robert Rauschenberg, right, even visited. Oh, that's right. So they, they welcomed artists in, and this was Bresson's personal take on it. I think he, I mean, given, you know, his photography, the human element is important, <laughs> right? What is interesting, and you see it in the exhibition, is that I juxtapose the Cartier-Bresson with a print by Lowell Nesbitt called The Firing Room, in which there are no humans at all. And in this way, the machine becomes sort of much more austere, not so friendly and compatible, which I think, again, these are the two sort of emotions that people were feeling. So I like that juxtaposition of the Cartier-Bresson and the Lowell Nesbitt. One depicting the computer as a, the mainframe as a, a friendly environment to be in, and the other as a more alienating one. 
I noticed that there is something of a Dadaist strain that runs through the show. I'm thinking of works by Hans Hacke, his news of 1969, or Alison Knowles's 1967 House of Dust, which was recently a prominent work in the Knowles retrospective at the Berkeley Art Museum. First of all, I guess, do you agree that there is kind of an undercurrent of Dadaism that runs through much? And if you do, why do you think, why do you think it's there? Why do you think kind of mixing a Dadaist approach to these new machines fit? That's interesting. Dadaist. I guess, I guess I'm, I mean, Alison Knowles is, is a Fluxus artist, right? So I guess if we think of Fluxus as, you know, late 20th century Dada, (laughs) I guess, then yes, it's a very different context. But there's an embrace of chance and uncertainty, especially in those two works, you know, where, where artists were often willing to try things unsure of what the end result on screen or on paper or on fill in the blank would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with the Knowles piece, it's actually, I mean, it was more of a permutational poem, I think you would describe yeah. it, in that it's it pulls on sets of word, words that she pre-selected, probably by chance, but there are pre-selected sets of words, and the computer program pulls on those to write quatrains. So at LACMA's installation, every 45 seconds, you get a new poem, a quatrain that describes a living abode, basically, what it's made of, how it's lit, and who inhabits it. I think for, you know, in terms of flux, like a fluxus approach, it's about having an open-ended possibilities with multiple solutions, not one single work of art, masterful work of art, right? It's about all the possibilities that are out there and embracing what comes along. There is also represented in the exhibition, a work, a composition by John Cage that he did with Laharen Hiller at the University of Chicago at Champaign, which is his harpsichord piece, which was, you know, based on classic harpsichord compositions, but then run through a computer. And there's like you said, chance and accident incorporated into the program so you don't really know what you're going to get at the end. But I think that was part of the ethos at the time was to incorporate chance as, again, a way of depersonalizing maybe the process and making it more expansive and open. What's What I find really interesting, actually, speaking of chance in relationship to the early computer art that was programmed is that many of the artists like Frieder Naka programmed chance into the work because they saw that as somehow standing in for artistic intuition. So the work would not be so rational and rigid in its mathematics, but that by putting a little bit of chance in there, somehow that simulated the uh, human intuition in the artistic process. The, ha- the Hans Hacke is runs continuously because, as you know, it's a continuous um, news feed of news coming off the wire. And there's always news. <laughs> yeah, it's called news. It's called news. If I didn't, if I didn't and, say that earlier. Yeah. So and uh, yeah. So and, you know, for me, it was an important piece to have in the exhibition because it's such a perfect metaphor for information overload. Because oh, when yeah. you see it is that the, the paper, the newsfeed that comes up is allowed to pile up. So it creates this huge pile behind the printer. And like I said, just stands in for information overload, which is a, an experience we're all too familiar with these days. But even in the late 60s for Hakka, 
was was relevant. Although I'd be curious to know if it was running all day, every day, like it, it does now. The sort of futurist, James Glick, wrote a book about that. Of course, the haka might even be more than a metaphor, considering how much room a museum chooses to allow the spooled paper to, to take up. When I heard this show was coming, the first work I thought of was Frederick Hammersley's 1969 computer drawings, which I think he made as a set of 72. And a group of them are indeed in the show. They're both fantastically visually engaging. I remember seeing a show at the Huntington Library about six years ago that I kept returning to because I kept having fun looking at and finding new things in them. And those those Hammersleys are full of seriality. And, and of course, that's dot matrix printers being dot matrix printers again. They're kind of funny. And they're, they're kind of pointedly using the new medium, I guess, if we're calling dot matrix printers a medium, on terms that go beyond just the medium. You know, he's joining what he could do with computers to other things then going on in artistic production, like seriality, like word games. I mean, so when I think of this kind of work, I think of Hammersley right away. How important or central was he to you in the conception of the show? I'm so glad that you brought up Frederick Hammersley's computer drawings. And I love that they're the first thing that you thought of, because when I first saw them 10 plus years ago, I was fascinated. Uh, I knew, of course, of Hammersley's work as sort of a geometric abstract painter, pretty well known here in Los Angeles, because that's where he was based until the late 60s, when he, of course, relocated to Albuquerque to teach at the University of New Mexico. And that's where he met Charles Maddox and Richard Williams and was introduced to the mainframe that they had there at the university and began making his computer drawings, which he only did for a year. He didn't continue after that. It was just sort of an all-encompassing project that he worked on exclusively for, I think, 1968, 69, maybe into 70. But I saw that, and we were offered them as a gift from the Hammersley Foundation. And I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I want these. These are fascinating drawings, or maybe they're prints. Wasn't quite sure what they were, how to categorize them, but I thought they were fascinating. So we acquired them for the collection. And that's really where the research for this show started. Mm. I wanted to know more about the context. Like, where did these come from? Who else was working with a computer in 1969? And yeah, lo and behold, it's the proverbial rabbit hole, right? I just, I discovered all this. In fact, there was a lot of many other artists working with computers. Manfred Moore, Frieder Naka, Beryl Molnar are the ones that quickly come to mind. You know, I had never learned about them in grad school, nor had I ever seen them in a large museum exhibition or collection. And I found them equally intriguing and worthy of, of a further study. So it was because of the Hammersley drawings that I began the research and discovered computer art. We'll have at least a couple of them on manpodcast.com, although to really see the construction of, I don't know, I'm trying not to say the construction of each character, but to get mm -hmm. You know, to see the, the the jokes and the cleverness within mm -hmm. each mm -hmm. print or drawing really requires seeing them at, at actual size and actual resolution. Yeah, and what we've done in the exhibition, I've you know, I have uh, 
I don't know, a handful of them on display. And then we also have an iPad adjacent to see, so you could see all 72 of them. So you can scroll mm. through and see all 72. And most importantly, you can zoom in <laughs> and see the details, which are basically alphanumeric characters, which was available on the impact printer that he was using at the time. He's a perfect also example of the length to which artists, these early computer artists went to, to make their work happen because, you know, you had to learn a program. Most artists were working in Fortran. The Hammersley drawings were make, made on one of the earliest programs designed for art making called Art One. It was designed by Richard Williams. So you had to, you know, had to learn the program or find somebody who you could collaborate with. Then you had to get time on the computer because yeah. during the day, the mainframes were being used for, I'm using, you know, quotation marks here, important work, <laughs> <laughs> right? So you'd have to go in late at night and then you'd insert your punch cards, hand them over to somebody. And then you have to wait a few hours until you get any output. And then when you did, inevitably, there was a mistake in your code. So you'd have to go back and fix it wait a couple more hours, you know, and, you know, and then, you know, I think the, probably the biggest hurdle was that not very many people were interested in what you were creating. <laughs> you know, there was a stigma against things that made on a machine. So I, I, again, like Hammersley and others, I was just fascinated by the lengths that they went to, to work with computer technology. And to me, that's a sign that that's worth looking at closely. You know, if an mm -hmm. artist is going to put that much into it, then uh, curators and critics and the world at large needs to um, take the work seriously. Catalog contributor Patrick Frank mm -hmm. writes that, quote, using a computer to make drawings was one of the most radical innovations in the history of art. At the risk of summoning you to answer to <laughs> or, or, or discuss what he wrote, his declaration is a, an opportunity for me to ask how artists used computers to make drawings. And I guess one of the things I found myself thinking about as I read the catalog is what distinguishes a drawing in this context from a design? Well, I guess intent, obviously. You know, if the artist is thinking of it as a work of art, we should consider it as such. I mean, with drawing, though, it's important to remember that it is the medium of exploration and innovation. So, an artist might not know when he or she is starting a computer drawing that it's actually going to be a work of art or not, <laughs> or if it's just going to be, you know, a throwaway or just a curiosity. And that's, you know, partially why I was drawn to this material is, was because of my background in drawing. I was thinking about computer drawings as being in line with what drawing is about, experimentation and innovation and going where no person has gone before. <laughs> Oddly, there were kind of also connections to surrealist automatism for me in my mind. I mean, that really comes out through the catalog too, I think. In fact, there's a lot of discussion of surrealism in the catalog, so I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> you know, the previous exhibition I did was called Drawing Surrealism. Yeah. So I do come from that from that background. And what, what makes make my approach a little different than a curator maybe coming from a new media background is that, you know, I'm coming from the past looking forward as opposed to from the present looking back. And, you know, I feel like, yeah, that there is this like surrealism, a wish to go beyond what the human mind is normally capable of, which can often be very 
limited by whatever, by <laughs> our times, by what we've been taught. But whereas the surrealists were interested in the unconscious and bypassing the rational mind and sort of a more psychoanalytical approach, I could see with computer automatism, I'm putting that in quotation marks too, an interest in going, again, going beyond like something you couldn't do with the, with the human mind. I mean, if you look at the plotter drawings by Verrill Molnar, for example, they're, they're just maximal. Like they are mm. just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're not rational or orderly in any way. In my mind, I look at them and they're, they verge on the sublime. Like they're, again, trying to go beyond what is humanly possible. I don't know any other way to say that, but that's sort of kind of how I feel like there's a connection, maybe worth further study and, you know, theorization <laughs> than I did in the catalog. But yeah, I just love this idea that of, of drawing being really the early manifestation of digital art. Wild to hear sublime, a very 18th, 19th century word used to describe things made with computers. Also, you know, an element of the sublime was a certain element of fear, right. which certainly fits with how many Americans would have felt about the work mainframe computers were doing for the federal government in, well, right. starting in the 50s and continuing to the present, particularly in regards to America's nuclear arsenal. I want to wrap up with something I'm sure you've thought of and which I can't imagine you intended but with something that I think tells us a lot about the years the show covers. This is the whitest show imaginable. Mm, yes. <laughs> it is It is probably the whitest show in an American art museum group show in a decade. Not, not counting Renaissance shows and such, but I mean, you know, of, of 20th century art. Why do you think that happened? I don't mean in terms of producing the show. I mean, in terms of who was making the work. And what should we take from that? Or what might we take from that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And believe me, I was very conscientious in planning the exhibition. Technology has, I think, always been predominantly more available to white people. And, and you know, this work was happening at major institutions, major uh, universities, I should say. So it may also had to mm. do with who was at the University of Mexico, who was at Ohio State, who was at, you know, Stuttgart University in Germany, just to name a few of the universities that had computer art making, not programs, but there it was there was definitely an interest. Chicago as well. Who was gatekeeping so, and who they let in, I think is what you're getting at, right? Yeah, yeah. Charles Gaines is in the exhibition, not Although as a computer might, artist, but as a conceptual that, artist. Yeah, that wasn't really that was that was the least computery work in the show. Yeah, it was interesting that there are a lot of women in the show, though. Well, I'm not sure you. I would have predicted that as somebody who's not researched the subject. Of course, I'm not sure I would have expected as many women to be in a show that goes back to 1952 in computers as yeah. as there are. No, I was happy that there were so many great women artists to choose from. I wish there had been even more because it was a new medium. And it corresponds with a period of time when there are just more women artists that they, not unlike with video, maybe even photography, were drawn to this medium because it didn't have a history. You know, it didn't have baggage of painting and sculpture and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, that said, the computer graphics field was dominated by men. Rebecca Allen does a great 
did a great piece in the mid-1970s where she sort of responds to the sexism in the world of computer graphics called Girl Lift Skirt. And because for her, it was so important that the human body be a part of this new aesthetic. And that was her feminist assertion. Assertion. Yeah. Good word. So it you know, it was still male dominated, but where there's a will, I think the women saw its potential. And like I said, one that uh, a medium that didn't have such a loaded history and had the potential for being, you know, egalitarian, right. And potential for everyone to make art and to disseminate art, which, Hmm. you know, I think has resonances with artists making digital work today, that it's not the singular art object, you know, that it can be be multiples of it. Fascinating. Leslie Jones, thanks very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.